Welcome to the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine, where we provide a platform for healthcare professionals working in or aspiring to join rescue, expedition and disaster response teams, a platform to share information, advice and opportunities and connect like-minded Red Med individuals in our community. Good afternoon and welcome to episode 26 of the Red Med Podcast, Rescue, Expedition and Disaster Medicine. As usual, this podcast is supported by SOS Coffee, coffee which we sell to fund medical missions for underserved communities across Guatemala. Today, I'm joined by my friend and climbing partner, Ben Woodard. How are you doing, Ben? Doing good, doing man. Good. Be uh, joining you. Nice to, uh, nice to link up again after so long. Absolutely. So, Ben is a nurse practitioner, climber, fellow of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, wilderness educator, He's got a master's degree and currently studying at Yale University. Is that right? Guilty as charged. Uh, yeah, I'm working on a doctorate there. Superb. I might, uh, we'll dig deeper into that a little bit later. But uh, Ben and I met while we were climbing and teaching teaching mountain medicine in Mexico on uh, Pico de Orizaba. Great pleasure to work with you, mate. I had a fantastic trip. It was such a great trip. It was uh, wild and nutty. I'm looking at some photos of it right now, actually. It was <laughs> some, good, some good times. Super. Never get tired of that mountain. It's absolutely fantastic. Great crew as well. Yeah, it was a really great group of participants this year. So just to add a little bit of context before we go down the rabbit hole, uh, do you want to add a little bit of context about your background, who you are, <laughs> where you come from, what your experience sure particularly in wilderness medicine and uh, wilderness education sure uh, i'd be happy to um you know context is everything i i guess i started into all this as a climber um so i you know when you know when in boulder colorado which is a great town to be young and dumb and um in college because you're surrounded by mountains and so i was doing a lot of climbing and um, halfway through undergrad, I knew I wanted to be in the health professions. And so I volunteered here and there, but I, um, went to nursing school and after I became a nurse, I just realized that, you know, on these climbing trips, people sort of assumed that I would know what to do if, uh, the proverbial shit hit the fan and I hadn't the foggiest idea <laughs> how to do it outside of a well-lit cardiac unit, you know, um, so I, I took the AWLS course, and I just fell in love with not only the course, but the instructors. They were dynamite, and I thought, man, I want to do that. So I started working on that. I um, went back to graduate school uh, and got my master's because um, I knew I wanted to be a nurse practitioner, And um, which for, for listeners who aren't familiar with NPs, we're you know, it's typically an experienced nurse that goes back to graduate school so that we can have a scope that's roughly similar to that of a physician. We diagnose, treat, prescribe, uh, and manage patients both independently and collaboratively. Um, and so I was doing both kind of side by side. I was, I found the Wilderness Medical Society or the WMS and I started working on, 
uh, my FOM, which is a ridiculous uh, abbreviation for a fellow in the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, um, while I was uh, doing my master's and uh, my first year as an NP. Um, and I started doing it mostly just for fun. And I found that so many of the skills that we were learning in the didactic and certainly in the conference kind of practical sessions became really, uh, they were very applicable to rural practice where I was at the time. Um, so yeah, fast forward, I met uh, this goofy dude named Ben Mattingly through a mutual colleague and started teaching with Wild Med Adventures. Uh, Chris and I have, everybody's got a kind of a wacky story as to how they know Ben Mattingly. Um, but uh, I taught a bunch of AWS courses with him and then started doing some of the courses abroad. And um, so, yeah, and then Yale, surprisingly, I was applying to graduate uh, programs again, which I swore I would never do. Um, I swore I would never do a doctorate or go back to school and they were particularly interested in the wilderness medicine piece. At that point, I was done with my farm. And um, so, yeah, that's that's more or less what I'm working on now and uh, trying to figure out a way to make teaching wilderness medicine and being a resource in that way uh, a feasible career option while working in the emergency room to pay the bills. Fantastic. Fantastic. Sounds absolutely incredible. And it, it's so true. The Wilderness Medical Society motto, trying to combine your passion with your profession. If you can find a way to do it, it's addictive. Oh, man. I, the, every person who comes on these courses is just, they're fascinating humans who are, who are leaning into this style of practice just because the, the, their career would be boring if they didn't. You know, it's, it's oh. just sort of a continuation of their character. It's really neat. Um, I mean, I know you you and I have witnessed that on courses, and it's just so... That's the best part. They select for fascinating participants. We okay. never get a dull, a dull student, right? Well, the last case was uh, on the side of Orisaba. We're managing a patient at 15,000 feet. We've got a nephrologist. We've got an ophthalmologist. We've got a critical care flight paramedic. We've got a primary care doc. And the differential diagnoses and the different patient management plans were just incredible. The amount of experience that was put on that table or on the side of the hill was just incredible makes for amazing discussions oh yeah man those those scenarios were phenomenal and if i do recall we only we only really had one real patient on that trip is that right chris yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh that later but uh, you improvised right. well you improvised well implemented uh, you taught that's right yeah <laughs> so we um we met on the side of Orisaba on uh, Wild Meds Mountain Medicine course, which is a an FAWM certified program that Ben designed. Ben's a crazy guy; he's one of the one of the nicest people I've ever met. Incredible physician as well. Yeah, now we're talking about Ben Mattingly here. Uh, I, on the other hand, I'm a total jerk, um, as it goes <laughs> by most standards. At least that's what most of my performance reviews say. Um, no, it's true. He's just like if. But he has not met uh, Ben Mattingly. He's he's becoming the stuff of legends. Um, I will spare him the embarrassment of doing a Kentucky accent as he teaches, but it's it's something to be uh, reckoned with. And also, his he's just infectious, isn't he? Like he gets teaching, and people just lean in and they just want to hang out with him. He's just one of those people. Um, Absolutely incredible, and he, his father's the same. Absolutely the same. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. You guys did some trips together. So Ben, uh, for the other listeners, runs uh, Bay State Health uh, through Springfield uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. He runs the Wilderness Medicine Fellowship for Emergency Medicine uh, Residency Graduates. And it's a program that has just been taking off in recent years. Uh, I think this year they're coming up with four fellows. Um which is phenomenal. He went from having, you know, one fellow not too many years ago to really having adequate funding to build out this killer program. So, um, look him up. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. And interestingly, I had a conversation on the side of Aconcagua with Ben about ultrasound and back then it was just a concept. It was an idea. It was heavy. It was expensive. It, it wasn't attainable for your average paramedic and within the last couple of years because of that conversation i've gone away and trained in critical care ultrasound and we now carry it on all of our ambulances and the helicopter and the search and rescue team in guatemala and now a, a small bluetooth device that connects to your cell phone and links to your satellite wi-fi hub it can really be a fantastic tool in your remote medicine arsenal oh yeah man one of my favorite memories of our orizaba course was at base camp what was, was base camp? It was like 13, 13 or 14,000 feet. And we had our ophthalmologist, who was one of our students, um, with our handheld ultrasound. We were teaching ocular ultrasound for, uh, you know, looking at optic nerve sheath diameter uh, in assessing for papilledema and, and um, intracerebral, like, you know, um, increased ICP. And I just had this moment of looking around and we're all sort of winded and cold and we've got this wet ultrasound gel on Chris's eyeball and we're just, (laughs) we're all learning this wacky skill in the middle of the weirdest place with the coolest technology. It was pretty rad, man. That was a great memory. But it was such a great example of the flipped classroom and powering participants and having them you know, really, really great for kinesthetic learners, but everybody was jumping in and ultrasound in different parts of the body and no better way to learn, putting it in so, context. Yeah, I did prefer our ultrasound course that was fireside at, uh, at OMG, but, you know, um, you, you, you take what you can in the wilderness medicine education world. Yeah, you can get coffee and beer by the fire, why not? <laughs> oh, so man. since then, we've done, um, on the side of Orisaba, we looked at hypothermia, altitude pathology ultrasound etc etc and and i took a lot of those lessons across to chile a month later in fact i hadn't unpacked when i got the call mm. and i was enough to do to support an expedition as the team medic we spent two weeks in the atacama desert two weeks climbing up to twenty-two thousand feet on the highest volcano in the world second highest mountain outside of the himalaya and it was just phenomenal Mm. Use the ultrasound to diagnose high altitude pulmonary edema at uh, eighteen thousand feet. B lines, baby. Yeah, all about the B lines, comet tails, definitely. But that was life saving. You know, we could have got into a potential discussion over the the uh, the participant was desperate to go for the summit that morning, and if it wasn't for the findings on the ultrasound screen, she'd have probably pushed on to the summit. So that really mm-hmm. helped. That's but, fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of emergency medicine on that trip, but I was responsible for the, the pre-screening of the participants, sure. call, clinic duties, development and execution of the medical emergency response plan, communications plan, food safety, training the guides, training the participants, particularly on the quiet days during the acclimatization days. So we did a little bit of everything, really. It was um, action-packed. I think there was a lot of people were bored on the 
Patient <laughs> days, but I, I was certainly busy 24, sometimes 25 hours a day. Right. But the thing is, as a paramedic, as an emergency medical provider and a, a critical care paramedic, I'm trained to deal with the initial emergency, the initial contact, the initial insult, if you like. And yet 90% of the stuff that I was doing on the side of the hill was either training and prevention or it was primary care. Right. So, or tonsillitis, kumbu cough, mild AMS headaches, GI issues. Right. Irritation, infections. So whilst I've trained as an offshore medic for the oil platforms, which introduces primary care, I'm predominantly an emergency provider. Right. But kind of the opposite to what you do, right? You, you're primarily primary care and you now prepare primary care providers to, to provide emergency care in the wilderness. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting mixed bag. I, I trained as a family nurse practitioner, and one of the big differences with uh, NP training is that we specialize when we're in school. So instead of doing a full generalist training and then doing a residency, we start yeah. focusing in on where we're going to be professionally practicing. And so the family NP training is really the most general Uh, training there is for nurse practitioners. So you learn a little bit about a lot of different things, but you're by no means a specialist. And, um, and so I did primary care for five years and then transitioned over the last two to three years. You know, I started moonlighting in the ER and, uh, and I'm just exclusively doing emergency medicine now. But like you're saying, you know, I, I had a, a mentor when I was working on my fellowship through the WMS who was encouraging me. I was like this new budding, almost graduated uh, from the fellowship clinician. And he was encouraging me. I got invited to go on this trip uh, to Everest Base Camp to be a medic. And I was scared of it. I was really intimidated by the demands. And he said, dude, you don't get that expedition medicine is like 90% treating blisters and diarrhea. (laughs) <laughs> and the, <laughs> the rest of the, every once in a while you're going to have a pucker oh no like oh god kind of moment but most yeah. of the time you're going to be busy with risk assessment and making sure people are pooping and not constipated and drinking enough water and you know that oh. sort of stuff so yeah i mean it's it is an interesting kind of dovetail with what i'm doing now my my research or my project is really focusing on trying to address the training needs of remote uh, nurse practitioners who are mostly primary care trained. So let's say you take your average family nurse practitioner, uh, maybe he or she ha- was put through school by their county or, you know, especially in the States, we have, um, there are a lot of outreach programs for sending students from indigenous groups back to school. Maybe they're coming back to South Dakota or rural New Mexico, you know, yeah. to serve their community. And, you know, where I first practiced, my first year of practice was out about 45 minutes from the nearest emergency room. And um, a lot of the time we were the first responders, right? The, the basic life support, the BLS, EMS providers would bring folks to the clinic um, wanting us to take a look at them and see if they needed to go over the hill. And sometimes it was a hot mess. Um, yeah. It was funny. So I was I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, dealing with the critical care and the initial insult. I was like, yeah, you're used to the hot mess. I'm used to everything from the tepid to the hot mess, um, <laughs> except warm mess sounds really gross. But uh, so, <laughs> you know, when 
potentially critically patient, critically sick patient rolls into a primary care clinic that's remote, and that clinician doesn't have skills in uh, airway management or initial, you know, initial uh, sepsis or you know shock stabilization, um, or even just basic fracture management. That's a problem. So. But NPs are so well poised to do this work. We look at the models that are, that exist in Australia and New Zealand, um, and they do a phenomenal job of addressing these health disparities that, you know, uh, disproportionately affect people who are in rural or really remote places. So, not unlike most doctoral students, that is a very windy version of saying we're creating this. Uh, postgraduate curriculum. It's a two-day training program, not unlike the Mira course uh, for remote providers, to prepare new nurse practitioners for a set of what we're calling advanced clinical skills and procedures. So, and what we're doing is we're measuring their confidence before and after, or what in the research world we call uh, self-efficacy, um, from Bandura's model. We're researching. We're, we're looking at how well they feel, how comfortable and confident they feel in doing these procedures after they've been walked through it, um, specifically the psychomotor parts, using our hands and getting comfortable with the equipment and the gear and, you know, which way does the ultrasound probe have to go and how do I hold a laryngoscope, et cetera. Um, so it's super fun. And do you think, do you think the, uh, the program length is adequate for the content, for the curriculum? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing I should say to your listeners is what I'm doing is what's called a DNP, a doctorate in nursing practice, which is a more clinically focused doctorate than a PhD. Um, so rather than trying to contribute to the larger research body by creating, you know, brand new material, what we're doing is we're focusing on what's already out there in terms of research and saying, okay, how do we implement it? When, where does the rubber really meet the road and how do we get it to do so effectively? Um, so this is to say it is a pilot in the in the truest sense of the word. We are not a hundred we're not it's not exactly like we're flying this plane as we build it. Um, we've done a I've done a very thorough review of the literature and have had some phenomenal field interviews with all sorts of different disciplines, uh, emergency NPs, ED docs, um, paramedics, medical directors for remote uh, areas. Um, We've got a couple of really interesting people on our expert panel for this. So this, the list of skills is very evidence-based. What we don't know yet is, is how students are going to respond. It may be that two six-hour training days will really change things for students. It may be that like a little knowledge is even more terrifying. So the hope is that this paves the way for establishing more training programs like this if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a need. It sounds similar to the uh, the International Paramedic Registry, which is currently in beta testing throughout Central and South America. Mm. Uh, they're really looking at the evidence from across the globe, which has been accumulated over the last couple of years. And now the panel, the roundtable are going through to determine the objectives and you know, what do we want this program to look like? What does it need to look like to be an international program and is it at the right level uh, particularly as it needs to be geared mm -hmm. not the u.s paramedics but 
nor Australian paramedics, UK paramedics, but internationally, is it the approach or the things that we're seeing on a daily basis in a range of environments? So that's an interesting process. Sounds very similar. But I think it's almost uh, almost a bigger scope, right? Like I can imagine that the training of, of paramedics, a much more internationally sort of ubiquitous presence, varies so much. That's a huge undertaking. I think most registries have been very autonomous and very, uh, you know, very autonomous regionally. I think Canada, Australia, UK have got their own self-contained system. Mm-hmm. Australia or Australasia launched an international registry, which wasn't particularly successful. Um, it's grown tremendously, but it didn't. It wasn't recognised across the full scope. Uh, particularly in South America. So I think the idea of this international paramedic program is to involve all the stakeholders from the outset. So sure. is, is recognized and approved. And that will then allow paramedics to interchange roles and, and interoperate around the world. But that uh, that's one thing which is developing fairly fast. But then you talk about education, mm. UK, Australia, Canada, the United States, more and more paramedic education is going down the academic route. So that paramedics, mm. it, it's gone way beyond a 12-week course as it used to be, but more and more we're going down the three- or four-year university degree course so mm-hmm. that we can participate in the evidence-based process, look at evidence-based yeah. medicine, and we can be part of the research process and develop the protocols for our specific environment. So more and more paramedics are being pulled into this academic channel, which is interesting that the, the nurses have always gone down that route and you're taking it a stage further. Well, it's this this movement from vocation to profession, right? We've talked about, uh, at least in the nursing world, the academic nursing world, as um, messy as it can be, uh, has talked a lot about moving from just that. You know, this the nursing profession as it was started as these diploma programs where you basically apprenticed in a hospital. And then when they thought you were ready, you were called a nurse. And, you know, even before then it was a very, very frowned upon way to spend your time. It wasn't even a vocation yet. You know, it was sort of for the lower class. And so we've seen nursing kind of come up from these diploma programs to uh, academic programs. And now, you know, there are Ivy League schools offering um, entry-level programs for nurse practitioners like Yale and and uh, Columbia, and and it's not to undersell the phenomenal state schools that are preparing folks. You know, my my alma mater for my master's was California State University, Sonoma State. Mm-hmm. But um, it's such an interesting thing. It's that combination of of uh, street smarts and book smarts and. I just, That's, yeah, it needs to be a blend, doesn't it? You, you've got to have the yeah. thing. Got to have what, what I'm finding, you know, I've worked with so uh, so many phenomenal clinicians who are really good at both, and the ones who I admire the most, right, are the ones who know how to integrate those book smarts into the streets and know, or just so to speak, right. Um, those phenomenal Ivy League <laughs> or whoever, the top of their class people. Yeah who still know what to do uh, when it gets really challenging. And, and that's where I get excited about teaching clinically. I've, I've you know, been a preceptor for a number of schools in this area and a clinical instructor. But those moments when people realize 
what it looks or feels or sounds like, the sort of sensory, sensory integration of learning um, is particularly exciting for me. And paramedics especially have that at the forefront because most of what you do is a kinesthetic and psychomotor skill set that yeah. has to be, you know, we always say with things like cricothyrotomies or, in, you know, in the emergency room, we often say that the most important thing to learn about a procedure is when to do it. Um, yep. You know, yep. if you think about like rapid sequence intubation or things like that and uh, and not being scared of it. And that's where I'm psyched about measuring confidence specifically, um, having people determine how they feel about jumping in and doing something that, you know, catches them off guard is in the middle of a clinic shift. Um, you're seeing the person with chronic diarrhea and COPD and every time they cough, you know what happened, you know, and, um, and a yep. clinic nurse runs yep. in and says, Hey dude, I got a chest pain over here and this guy looks terrible and he's breathing really fast. Um, how are our providers uh, prepared for that? And I mean, you must've seen this with, you know, novice or junior paramedics in the UK or, or certainly cheese man in the battlefield, like, folks where you're like yep this is what it looks and feels like get in there and do it what we try and develop particularly through the wilderness programs is ensure that participants go away with currency confidence and competence so they know exactly what to do how to do it when to do it whether it be in the street the er on the side of the mountain unsupervised but we we see a bit of a polarization the old paramedic programs were very psychomotor heavy very kinesthetic Whereas now there's a lot more emphasis on the academic. So uh, mm. we, we try and strike the balance. And I think these wilderness programs really help whilst a lot of them are accelerated. They try and merge things in context. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I love most about wilderness medicine as a whole and what the WMS really yeah, continues to promote, there is the, you know, merging profession with passion. But I think what I has, have observed in the courses that people, uh, you know, enroll in in the States and, and outside of the States is people want to bring creativity back into what they do. Yeah, yeah. We, it's, it's not enough for people who are called to this work to follow an algorithm. Anybody can do that. I think it's about being able to think on your feet and engage that uh, curious part of your mind um, in a really – in an unexpected way. And, you know, I, I used to say that, oh, wilderness medicine courses only attract outdoorsy people. And I've been so tickled to see how many people are called to check it out, sort of because of this. I, I, I'm channeling Mattingly here, but this sort of onboard MacGyver instinct that we all have, right? It's, it's in us to want to do what we can with the resources we have. Um, so it's it's super fun to see anybody, whether they're like a primary care nurse or, you know, a, a trauma surgeon, learn how to do these things we do with completely different resources. Um, and that's the fun, you know, like you're saying, I think there's much more of a place for primary care, especially as we explore the sort of research world of prolonged care, right? So, okay, you've got a patient with pulmonary edema. And they're getting evac'd out, but it's going to take three days. What other things do we need to consider? How do we manage their blood pressure? Does that really matter? Um, oh, now they've got signs of an infection. What else are we thinking about? Um, so it's 
it's fun to teach creativity because it keeps creativity in in my world if that makes sense yeah 100 percent. and I, we think so much alike and algorithms are great if you're in the er or in the back of the ambulance but the minute the minute things change the dynamic changes whether it be the temperature the light the number of participants the number of healthcare providers the power supply the amount of spare hands you've got the resources the time and distance to definitive care right with them almost goes out the window because you train in a, in a drill format and you know what's coming next, you know what you need. And the minute that changes, unless you're training for it to be out of your comfort zone and be accustomed to improvising, um, whether it be on the side of a hill in a short term emergency or rescue, or <laughs> as you say, you're in a prolonged field care, things change. Where's the power? Let's yeah, call it. Man. Well, and you know, I've told my clinical students and I, I'm, I, for the record, for the listeners here, I am very much so still uh, a, a, a constant learner and I'm no expert. I would say I'm an advanced, moderately competent provider, but <laughs> I don't know if that counts in a university um, professional review. But uh, basically, you know, we learn guidelines so that we know when to not use them. Right. We know. So we, we learn them in and out. We learn ACLS and PALS and, you know, these sort of things in and out. So we have a beginner level competency, a proficiency in a skill. And then we need to know when to throw that out the window because um, you never know, man. Your patient could be your participants on a trip or it could be one of the fittest people on the trip. I'm I'm still very much a, a beginning instructor and learning how to do it well. But, um, you know, when I take clinical NP students, we go through these guidelines that they're grilled on in school and I try to remind them, you know, guidelines and algorithms exist to know when we shouldn't use them, right? Yeah when yeah. we need to break them and think out of the box. And ACLS is a great example. You know, advanced cardiovascular life support and PALS, pediatric advanced life support through the AHA, they're so good at helping us develop beginner and intermediate level proficiency in these things uh, like resuscitation. Um, but once we get into the nitty gritty and the real life applications, we know it's not the calm, cool, collected uh scenario we did in that conference room or that hotel room when we were doing our recertification, right? Um, it's, it's a mess. And sometimes thinking out of the, the box is better for the patient. Um, and I mean, wilderness medicine does that, right? We're trained on these algorithms and, you know, even risk management. I was remembering on our trip, Chris, how, you know, we're focused on the health and the well-being of our participants, <laughs> <laughs> and their fitness level and all these things and never expected the instructors to get sick, did we? <laughs> oh, no, 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 at all. We also, didn't ex we also didn't expect the dexamethasone to be so damn cold at uh, 16,000 feet, if I recall. Well, how did you warm that up? Uh, let's just <laughs> say it, I was very careful with the glass ampule in my cheek. <laughs> that was a trip, so... Do what you got to do, right? Yeah, I guess so. We were we were getting up. Actually, I think it was like a two or three a.m. Alpine start to do Orizaba, and everybody had trained really hard, and we were all pumped and ready to go. 
And we woke up, and, and Mr. Machine, Chris Gibbos here, was just, you were... Uh, just not feeling it. So we'd had a, we had a fairly sensible, fairly gradual ascent profile. But, uh, we did, I, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we bagged a couple of peaks prior to getting to the base camp, prior to our summit day. But uh, I had a couple of nights of not sleeping. Woke up feeling a little bit nauseous, a little bit heady, mild headache. Just really had no energy. I was like, I've climbed this hill a couple of times before. Do I just stay in bed and let everybody else go? And, uh, well, you had another plan. Well, you know, it was it was a really good example of, you know, thinking on your feet and trying to think about mission divergence, right? And I'm grateful to say that we had planned the trip well enough and our guides uh, were savvy enough to know that if you didn't go, there was it was it was no big deal for the other participants. Everybody else would have a have a hack at it. But um, you were just so pumped for this. And uh, at any rate, you you downplay it a little. You looked like garbage, dude. Um, I so I gave you some Zofran and then I was like, oh, do you want a little dexamethasone? And you <laughs> you acquiesced. But the only decks we had was in these like wacky old school glass ampules. It was so funny. And like, I think the only syringe we had was an insulin syringe. So we worked with that and, um, you got a dose of decks and, uh, it was deep enough in the muscle. I hope you don't have a dimple in your adipose tissue, but, um, you summited, you did great. And, um, you pulled through and now you'll take Diamox every time. Yeah, and I did uh, two months later in, uh, in Chile <laughs> from the same altitude and felt a million times better. So Yeah, I bet you did. Power of Dimox. Power of Dimox, baby. Yeah, uh, thank you. Much appreciated. But uh, where I was going with that was you've got emergency medicine in the ER. Then you've got pre-hospital emergency medicine. And some describe wilderness medicine as almost extra hospital emergency medicine. Sure. And it's just a whole new sphere. It's, a, it's an emerging discipline. It's almost a, you can make it a full-time profession, really. Aside from the Advanced Wilderness Life Support course, which is a real, a real blend of didactic and practical skills, I think we've both done it, the fellow medicine. How yeah. did you feel that the, the postgraduate qualification, the form, prepared you for working in the wilderness environment? You think it's good preparation? I do. I think it was really great on the didactic front. Um, I mean, if anybody is interested in in checking out the fellowship, it is well worth the time and energy. If not for professional, you know, development, but but just for personal development, you're going to learn a ton about yourself, and um, you're going to learn a lot of really cool stuff from really really smart and uh, creative people. Um, yeah, and I mean, the you have to cycle through. You have to go through all of these credits. I think it's like. Is it two hundred some CE? It's it's an it's a very impressive tracking system they have at this point. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, x amount of time studying altitude physiology and injuries um, at altitude and haste and hape and you know creative splinting techniques and all the kind of basic stuff like what we cover in in AWS. 
But then it gets into some really specialized stuff. Like I remember towards the end of the fellowship, I don't know if you had this experience, but like trying to get the credits and like jellyfish injuries, <laughs> like pediatric oh, snake oh, bite oh, treatment oh, evidence. And I was like, where do you find this stuff? Fortunately, they, they had the lectures, but it was just like, oh man, we're getting into the weeds here. Um, it was great. I loved it. And, uh, yeah. you know, the AWS is such a great introduction course for so uh, advanced wilderness life support is for healthcare providers who are licensed. It can be anything from an EMT to an ER doc to an N to an RN to a dentist. Um, I think pharmacists too. But the the fellowship is a little bit more of a deep dive, and it's even that's just an intermediate level. People are now going on to do the diploma in mountain medicine. There's the diploma in marine. Um, dive medicine. Uh, dive medicine, which is super cool, where folks can can really get these internationally recognized credentials in in this type of practice. Did you did you focus your form in a, a particular area? Did you follow the mountain medicine as, as a passion or did you try and make it as general as possible? Did you get a good balance between your core credits on the didactic side, plus hands-on practical courses, maybe in Guatemala, Costa Rica. Um, yeah, yeah, it was. A, it's a good question. I because I'm a climber, I think I was drawn to the articles and the talks that were more about climbing injuries and kind of the 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 whole new world of climbing epidemiology, which included a lot of mountain medicine and epi, you know the sort of injury patterns there. Um, I am nowhere near the level of getting into the, you know, the dim, the diploma in mountain medicine depth. But so I focused a lot on that. You know, the funny thing was a lot of my experience credits came from um, uh, basically medical direction and, and volunteering for things like, you know, we, we host this thing in New Hampshire called Epic Skill Swap, where participants come and can learn to do everything from, you know, fly fishing casting to freshwater invertebrates to operating a backhoe. Um, so needless to say, there's some funky injuries that happen there. Um, but, you know, volunteering at triathlons, you know, treating these like crazy elitely fit athletes at the end. So it was a, it was an interesting mixed bag. Yeah. It, it it seems kind of out of context, doesn't it? When you you look at a event medical cover, but then you're looking at things like exercise associated hyponatremia. Yeah, absolutely. I remember we had a bunch of cases actually of uh, of hyponatremia, and interestingly, you know, we didn't have eye stats, the you know finger stick labs to check sodium levels, and yeah. what we what we had to go on were pre race weights. So everybody's, you know, weight in kilograms before they started the race the day before and then afterwards. And if somebody was positive and not negative, they got nothing but salty fluids and we monitor them very carefully. Um, you know, or even thinking about things like rhabdo, how do you diagnose rhabdomyolysis when you can't check, you know, CK and B, you know, myoglobin and, and check troponins and, and LFTs and differentiate all that stuff. Um, I'll give you a hint. You give them a lot of fluids and you watch the color of their pee and see what happens. Um, and if it doesn't clear up, they're going in. That's just a crossover of tactical medicine, wilderness medicine, rescue medicine, critical care medicine, and it all lands in the middle with the MacGyver touch it's yeah, baby. It's, it could be anybody. You could be an interventional cardiologist or as we found on our trip, you know, 
we had like nephrology, ophthalmology, spine surgery, ER providers, and ortho. All, ortho yeah, it was all just about MacGyvering with yeah. what skills you have, and there were some incredible skills amongst That's our participants. Incredible knowledge, and it just goes to show the value of being able to reach back to a specialist. Having them on the side of the hill with you is incredible. If you can reach back and use telemedicine and get not just generic but specialist advice, it really makes a difference. Yeah, man. And I think that really is – it's the future not just of our care and our interventions, right, our ability to um, pipe in experts. But I think it's also the future of our education. You know, If you have a new provider out in the sticks who doesn't – they're not 100% comfortable with assessing the difficult airway. Can they pipe somebody in who can yeah. say, hey, I'm you know, a, a fellow of ASAP and I've, I'm an expert resuscitationist and I'm, I'm here to help you with this really crappy situation. And we're starting to see more of that. It's really cool. And as long as providers are able to take their ego out of the equation. And manage yeah. everything and, and be able, be humble enough to reach back. I mean, looking back six weeks, I was on the side of a mountain at 6,000 meters by myself, responsible for the food hygiene, food safety, food temperatures, everything from uh, managing musculoskeletal injuries to earlier on in the trip, scorpion stings, GI yeah. insults, rashes. You can't be an expert in everything. You've got to have a large toolkit and you've got to be able to take it with you and work through the problems. You've got to know when to reach back to an expert. Yeah, you know, um, I'm going to pause for one sec, Chris, because there's a quote I really want to bring in here that's yeah. so, so good um, from a climber who was talking about that sort of ego thing. I'm looking it up right now. Um, yeah, man. I mean, I think egos are, unfortunately, when you think about MacGyver medicine, you also get people who are interested in cowboy medicine, which we've all worked with those people and, you know, or, or been one ourselves before we had it uh, handed to us. And, you know, I, I think of it a lot with medicine the same way I think about it with climbing, right? Um, ego has very limited function when you're in that sort of a situation. And there's actually, there's a rock star badass climber named Hazel Findlay. She's uh, an English climber. And she had this great quote that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is, if climbing makes your ego bigger, not smaller, then you're doing it wrong. Doesn't matter what grade you climb, right? And I feel the same way, especially about wilderness medicine. If, if your ego is bolstered by this work, um, you know, you're doing it wrong or you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you may end up hurting somebody. And, you know, I think in, in everybody's career, we have these times or these things we look back on and say, oof, you know, had I known better. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, I think we finally have a good history of wilderness medicine, you know, dating back to the Peter Hackett's and the Auerbach's when they were doing this. Um, just by the seat of their pants, to know why we do it the way we do it now. I mean, I, I had an instructor once say, well, you know, every single guideline is based on something going wrong. <laughs> and I, I yeah. think about it, you know, thinking back to those guidelines, they're, they're also there to keep our egos in check. Um, so it's it's a tough balance, right? Thinking creatively, I would like to think thinking creatively is not 
copacetic with uh, bolstering one's ego. But, you know, um, if I may speak brashly, there are assholes everywhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll find them whether you're working with cool people in the Kumbu or uh, in an inner city ER. So, yeah. yeah. But I think that the, the concept ties in well with reflective practice, which can. Yeah. Which could be seen to be a bit of a, an embuggerance and a time waster or a gap filler during an academic course. But when you come back off an expedition, you, you've been in a jungle for the first time and, and a p- patient presented with fever, general malaise, you know, myalgia, you think, well, is it dengue? Is it chikungunya? Is it Zika? Is it COVID-19? You know, you come back in and you look at the differentials. You look at where you are, you look at the geographic range, that look at the regional epidemiology. And there's so much value in doing a reflective practice exercising and doing the research when you come back and consolidate that knowledge. Um, but to be able to treat the patient at the time when you hit that limit in your knowledge, I think yeah. telemedicine is, is essential. Telemedicine is essential. And it's also, you know, I, I love that you're bringing up the reflective piece because I think one of the things I've liked most about taking students is um, working on the tough cases or the things that come up where we felt really uncomfortable and being able to unpack those, not just reflecting back like a, you know, um, a case review, but really saying like, hey, what did that bring up for you? Because you seemed really worked up afterwards or this thing I noticed seemed to trigger you. Would it be helpful to unpack that a little bit? Um the, the way we can be there for each other in those ways is just as important as learning the algorithms and the creative care. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing this a lot with, especially with COVID right now, you know, I, I'm working in a, in a community ER and we're front lines for this. Our County has it now. And um, we've had a few positives in the community and the hum of the ER as we're, you know, dealing with this and the sort of, we're all a little edgy, of course, yeah. Yeah. and trying to stay courageous and, and still go into those rooms and treat the folks. And, and it's not to be martyry, but to be able to, to have the time and, and frankly, the culture to step aside and say, Hey man, you, you look a little worked up what's going on. Um, you know, that's, for example, there's a kid who is pretty sick and, you know, I work with a bunch of nurses who are parents you know, and they're worried about taking it home to their kids and what their kid would look like in respiratory distress. And, right. and so it's, I, I feel particularly grateful for, um, that skill of reflective practice when it comes to the impact it has on us. Right. And yeah. it is an exciting kind of, as you know, you know, I have a skill for tangents, but it is an exciting branch uh, of wilderness medicine that I'm looking forward to seeing built out more you know, dealing with these prolonged and, and somewhat sort of foobar situations, yeah. how how do we debrief after those things and well, and and care for our own? We've talked about the, the currency, confidence, and competence aspect, and I think the reflective practice process helps develop that and consolidate that, and it really distinguishes or helps you distinguish between knowing and understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a big difference between knowing and understanding algorithmically i know we inject amiodarone 300 milligrams but at a cellular level do we know what's happening do we know why we're doing it and what the outcomes we we might expect or what the side effects might be and i think circling back to the whole covid thing that that's why a lot of people are getting burnt out aside from the patient volumes it's the 
not knowing. It's the uncertainty. It's yeah. changed daily basis. We've got an idea of the modes of transmission and uh, and how it may affect the pathophysiology, but we're not entirely sure. And it's that constant change and constant having to adapt, the constant uncertainty that is fatiguing. But yeah. So, in other topics, reflective practice, I, I'm a very big fan. It determines the difference between knowing and understanding, which really consolidates your base platform for future practice. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, man. I think the thing that is most exhausting about this is not putting N95 masks on. It's not knowing if by the time you got home, like the other day I got home and I was just totally exhausted and you know, I was achy because I'd been on my feet all day for 12 hours. And I was like, oh, crap, am I getting sick? And I was like, well, no, you're just you're just pooped. <laughs> like, you know, we're all dealing with these uh, these uncertainties and people aren't great at uncertainty for the record. Like, I think the Buddhists have got it down pretty good, but um, a <laughs> lot of other people are really, you know, and we inject uh, into the place of uncertainty, a lot of presumptions about fear. And I think being able to teach being comfortable with uncertainty when it lies outside of our algorithms is particularly challenging. Um, I, I'm no expert on it. I'm curious to know from the, the red med world, if there are experts in teaching uncertainty. Um, but yeah, man, I don't think, um, I don't think you can prepare for every situation, but I think the wilderness medicine, the red med circuit, I think it's a concept, it's an ethos, and it prepares you generally to face a different set of circumstances using the tools that you already have in your tool bag to, to the best of your ability. So it is MacGyvering to a certain extent. Well, and a shout out to you for that very reason. I mean, here we were on this course in Orizaba, and we're all like hobbyist, you know, wilderness medicine subspecialists. And here's this dude who from day one of his career was like, you know, you know, Iraq and Baghdad and green zone and, uh, Bosnia. And then, Oh, right. Taking fire from ISIS and all the things. And we we're like, man, I don't know if you know this, Chris, but halfway through that course, like actually two days into the course, everyone was referring to you as Rambo, <laughs> which is great. Um, right. I mean, you have a, a, just a world of, knowledge and experience on that front of dealing with that uncertainty. Um, so it's on you, man. You got to open up uncertainty university, a doctorate in not knowing what the fuck to do. Well, that's going to take a, <laughs> a large rucksack with a, a nurse practitioner, a gastroenterologist, a cardiologist, and take you all with me. That's it, man. Don't forget the, uh, electrophysiologist. Oh, we need a dermatologist too. Uh, <laughs> you got to have a dermatologist. That's, uh, <laughs> So I want to narrow it down even further. Sure. Some quick fire questions for you. Aside from the dermatologist, what is your go-to never <laughs> leave home piece of personal wilderness equipment? Uh, well, well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think about what's in my pockets, right? Like in this moment, what's in my pockets? I've got my, I've got a small blade. Uh, an everyday carry, just a pocket knife that goes everywhere with me. Um, and, uh, a couple of safety pins, they come in handy and some duct tape. Those are, those are in about every one of my packs as well as a little piece of Fero, you know, like magnesium, uh, fire starter rod is in most of my like 
quick grabs, even just for daily outings. But nice. mostly it's just what's in the wallet and the knife. So um, if you had to whittle it down to one between the blade and the duct tape, what would you oh, go the fl- for? Oh, the blade. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. I mean, I, I know this is probably pushing on the nerves of the true MacGyvers out there, but, yeah. you know, I haven't yet tried to fabricate duct tape out of, you know, natural fibers, but uh, I know nothing compares. Nothing compares to the tried and true. Well, that leads nicely on to the next question. One of the few things that you can't fabricate in the wilderness with duct tape and a knife are medicines. So what would uh, be yeah. a, never leave home without a piece of medical equipment? Or medical food. equipment or medicines? That's a, those are interesting. Either, oh, brother. All right. I'm going to answer both. Um, I think I've got this great little pen light that's maybe two or three inches. It fits one AAA battery and it is as bright as it gets. And that battery lasts forever. Um, and I've been in so many crappy situations. It fits under, you know, the bill of my hat. It fits over my ear. I can hold it in my mouth while I'm working on something. I take it to work with me. Um, I should say if it fits in my mouth, I sterilize it between every use. <laughs> but yeah. like a really good high power but very small light is just indispensable. Um, cool. cool. You know, medicines are a whole nother thing. That could be a long list. But I often tell people my my three my top three I call them the desert island drugs are prednisone, yep. uh, Zofran, and uh, probably either doxy or Leviquin. Because um, nice. you. Just about anything with those three. Yeah, I'd be tempted to go for epinephrine, adrenaline, and maybe aspirin. Oh, uh, fine. You got to split hairs on me. Um, yeah. True. Yeah. Absolutely. You, prednisone's not very high utility when someone's having a, an MI or a stroke. Um, it's, I give you that. <laughs> Five would be good. We'd have them all covered. All right, fine. It is funny. Every time we do this talk, like people keep adding in drugs. They're like, oh, and we should also have this. And I'm like, hey, yeah. we said top two. You can have one. You can have one. It's hard. It's, it's a hard question to answer. But going yeah. back to uh, the flashlight, if you to that, then you could find scorpions in the desert night and you could do eye exams with fluorescein. Oh, that's oh, right. You get the UV on there. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so next quick fire question. What's your favorite adventure location to date? Oh, dude, I was worried you were going to ask me that. That's a hard question. There's not many. I just, I mean, I feel super lucky that I've gotten to check so many out, but I I have a particularly soft spot in my heart uh, for this place in Wyoming called the Wind Rivers Range. Mm-hmm. Um, it's beautiful and just there's so much grandeur. And of course, as a climber, it's like, you know, Narnia. Um, but yeah, the winds and, you know, I'm a desert boy. I grew up in New Mexico in the mountains. So, uh, I still, I still have a soft spot for New Mexico. That's good. Well, let's get this pandemic over with and, uh, and I'll book it. <laughs> Need to get some climbing. Done. Let's do it. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Last one then. Um, how would you suggest if, if we've got urban paramedics, nurses, firefighters listening now, what would be a great start to get into a wilderness medicine career? Where would you suggest people start? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the best way to do it is the, the, the kind of blanket answer is with other people, right? So if you can get on a trip that is, even if it's not wilderness medicine focused, but you're doing, you know, an, a Knowles or an outward bound trip with your kid or something like that, that's just such a dynamite way, especially if you're not, 
you know, yeah. a, a quote unquote outdoorsy person. But, you know, if you're already a climber, you're into these sort of things and you want to specifically hone your training in wilderness medicine, you know, if you're, if you're a licensed provider, advanced wilderness life support is a great way to do it. Yeah. Um, there are a ton of really great courses. There's the Mira course. If you're really interested in remote medicine, I think that's offered mostly in, in Europe and the UK, but, yeah. um, you know, uh, the wilderness first responder for non-medical folks, um, and for EMTs, you can upgrade to a wilderness EMT is just such a dynamite overview and uh, general kind of introduction to the process. Um, you know, the WMS has these great adventure trips. I think uh, our, our group wild med adventures does as well, where you can come on a trip like Orizaba or, you know, a yoga retreat in Costa Rica or do one of the seven summits, but also do certification work towards, you know, for example, your fellowship. Um, so, and just, just go for it. Get, get uncomfortable is the, is the mantra. Sounds good to me. Sounds excellent. So last one then, last point, given the current, pandemic that we're in and the, the what advice would you give to anybody that's thinking about going out to the national parks during this period oh yeah, yeah. you were uh, you were batting down the hatches stay at home kind of guy or does it depend where people are or should people continue trying to get fresh air as long as they're in small groups or well you know two parts to that one is of course in wilderness medicine our favorite answer to any question is it depends, it depends. Um, absolutely yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a it's a great way to hedge for all those medical students listening um but uh you know it's hard because i know for myself i am seeking refuge and normalcy in the natural world right now yeah you know after five days of working in the ER in the midst of this mess, I just want to go for a hike. Like I went fly fishing yesterday and even though it was just, it was just cold, gross new England rain in March. I was like, I'm going, but you (laughs) know, with the social distancing thing, especially with national parks, we've got these dense crowds and you know, there's so many problems that these dense crowds pose to national parks on a whole when we think about, you know, erosion and trail maintenance, et cetera. But the bottom line, I think, is if we want to keep a place like Yosemite accessible, right, it, it cannot be a reservoir for disease. It can't be a vector. And so if we can really honor the local authorities' requests to to social distance or isolate or, you know, part of it is the onus of the park, to close if they feel like it's appropriate but it's it's a tough call man because you know if anyone's ever read john muir you and and really got it we know that these places recenter us in a way that make us better citizens of humanity and right now in the middle of all this fear and this epidemic of of just panic and irrational decisions I just want people to have contact with something real, even if it's nature. So uh, my advice would be like, please, please get out and enjoy something real and get some sunshine and some fresh air in your lungs and go up in the mountains. Um, and if the park rangers tell you not to go because of crowding, please honor their requests. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it back to depends, doesn't it? I yeah. The parks are shut here in Guatemala and Guatemala has been particularly proactive in, in closing things down early mm. uh, we've closed the borders we've closed schools and shopping centers and 
even the national parks, even the mountains are closed just to increase that social distancing. And but let's see if it works. But we're in the containment phase, so let's uh, let's be disciplined, I guess, and and see how we come out the other side. Yeah, and that's just it. I mean, I think people are so so driven by the fear right now, and to be able to have discipline. Um, but also courage, not just to face it, but also to still be kind and still be friendly and still say hello to your neighbor, even if it's 10 feet away. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's really important to maintain those qualities. So I hope, I hope for all of our sake, we can keep doing that. I hope so. There certainly seems to be a lot of real human stories coming out of this so far. It'll be interesting to analyze it as we go through and, but there seems to be a lot more community spirit and interoperability and, we shall see. But, uh, okay, moving on. Um, so we're talking about travels. You and I have prepared and planned a couple of trips. Let's see as and when we're able to to jump into the international travel sphere again. But we've got a couple of uh, certified international courses ready to go. Mountain and Jungle Medicine in Ecuador. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this trip. I think it's going to be a good one. It's going to be phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. So uh, climbing Cotopaxi up to 6,000 meters in the ice and snow and then down into the Amazon jungle, rafting through the trees. And we'll be looking at everything from bites and stings to altitude illness and everything in between. So I'm stoked for that. Yeah, it'll be good. And, you know, based on people's response to this podcast, we're either going to get a lot of participants or less. (laughs) (laughs) I think it'll be a good trip. Yeah. And um, I mean, having spent a good amount of time in Ecuador, it's just such a huge biodiversity in such a tiny country. It's so cool. Great culture, great food, perfect climate. And then hopefully we'll head across uh, across the pond, get to Morocco where we'll do the desert and the mountain medicine course and spend a few days over landing in the Sahara Desert and then climb the highest mountain in North Africa, Tukbal. Oof. Yeah, that's going to be a trip. And when, when were you thinking about that one? Uh, planned for December, first week in December. But uh, let, Let's see if the program doesn't shift to the right slightly. Yeah, we'll see how this all shakes out. But um, uh, fingers crossed, always excited to do more trips with you, Chris. It's so yeah. fun working with you, man. Likewise. Likewise, I really enjoy it. Learn a lot every time. Ditto. And then we the the Red Med course planned, Rescue Expedition Disaster Medicine, uh, was due to be in the next couple of months, so we've put a hold on that. But we are about to launch the online Red Med course, and the Red Med book is going to publication in the next six weeks. So that'll be uh, action-packed. The online course is going to be certified for form credits, as is the on-site course. Marvelous, man. And and huge congrats on the book to you as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, a labor of love. It's gone on for two years, but not just anecdotes. There are some anecdotes in there, but it's uh, literature-based, evidence-based. Uh, it includes everything from survival, telemedicine, ultrasound, polar expeditions, bites and stings, crush injury, water treatment, active shooter, personal security, landmines, altitude illness, public health in disasters and everything in between. So yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. And, and don't forget how to effectively warm up dexamethasone at 16,000 feet. You need to to write that chapter. I think it'll be, I think it'll be a quick chapter friend. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's great, man. Well, so fun talking to you. Um, Great. Thank you so much for the value. Yeah. So it's like to hear more about um, the book and and certainly the courses and uh, hope to see you soon, brother. Yeah. Fantastic. So before we shoot, is there anything you want to plug, anything you want to mention, anything from school, courses? Gosh, uh, no, I think you said it pretty well. And um, just sending out a especially um, hearty message to all the healthcare providers on the front line of the COVID-19 situation, but also all the other things that uh, humans come into your care facility with that have nothing to do with COVID that make our jobs hard. I'm just so proud to uh, count you all as uh, brothers and sisters in this and um, hoping everybody's doing well at taking care of themselves, getting enough rest and uh, building up their courage so fantastic thank you so much ben really appreciate it mate stay safe i'll speak to you soon my pleasure talk soon all the best mate bye bye